Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Hey, it's Barry Katz showing up early, very early on this podcast before it starts to let you know this is a special re-release of Patty Jenkins, one of the most inspirational people I know, the director of Wonder Woman, and for a woman who has had many, many ups and downs in her career and was a part of one of the greatest drama thriller movies that I've ever seen, Monster. It's been a long road since then till now. And her words, her story, her wisdom, there's nothing that can beat it. And what better time as our country celebrates its birthday that you get to celebrate her incredible, powerful words of how to take a career in the entertainment business from zero zero to being the highest grossing live action female director of all time with Wonder Woman. Enjoy the show. Enjoy the fourth. See you next time. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. As I like to do to open these shows, I like to tell a story that sort of, I think, has six degrees of separation or some unique twist or something that relates in some shred to my guest, Patty Jenkins. And this is a very exciting podcast for me. So, before I start this, I just want to, again, thank everybody who listens to this and is a part of this. It's crazy. I never thought it would be like this. I'm very grateful and thankful, and keep up the emails and the great comments. 
It's wonderful. Anyway, my story is this. I know a young man who is a architect, and he's a very talented architect, and he basically gave up everything for his art and sort of just opened his own office in this little space and for the past 10 years just been grinding it out believes in his talent believes in who he is and occasionally you know every year he'd have a job that was an extraordinary job where he designed like a multi-million dollar house but the margins were so slim always living check to check yet this guy in his profession in my opinion is brilliant but for some reason, for 10 years, just grinding it out while other people who I perceived as being less talented than him were, were passing him or doing things or weren't making their dreams come true or however it was. And he called me, said, listen, would you come to dinner with me? I want to talk to you about my business and my life and what's happening. We go to this bar it's kind of noisy, but he's comfortable there, and he's telling me his story about how he's doing his business. And I said to him, I don't understand. You're brilliant at what you do, but I don't know. It just doesn't seem like you're moving the needle as much as you could to this point. I said, how many jobs have you done in 10 years? Even the tiniest little things where you're redoing a bathroom to a house or whatever. And he says, he said, maybe I've done 100 jobs from the littlest thing to the biggest thing i said okay how many of those 100 jobs have you gone out and gotten in other words you're responsible for getting it you see a sign on a hill that says we're building here purchased by this person and you go get the number you call the person who purchased the lot you call them you set up a meeting you sell them on what you do as an architect and then you get the job and then you do the job how many times has that happened in 10 years? And he said, once. You know, now that I think about it, that was the biggest job I ever had and the most financially successful job I ever had. And I've known him a long time, so I was comfortable saying this to him. I said, so what you're telling me is you booked as many architectural jobs by going to get them you booked one more than a dead guy. So a cadaver could be sitting at your chair for 10 years and you booked one more job than that that you went and got and the rest are people referring to you or somebody calling you. And he said, well, you didn't have to put it that way, but now that you put it that way, yes, that's correct. I've only gone out and gotten one. I said, okay, we got to figure this out. You got to go out and you got to figure out how to bet on yourself. You already bet on yourself and got the office, but that's one step of it. Now you got to bet on yourself and go out and believe in yourself and sell yourself as an artist because you are an artist. Tell me something you're really great at that has nothing to do with architecture. And he puts his head down like he's ashamed. I said, come on, what's your biggest strength? He says, okay, look around this bar. I say, yeah, I'm looking. He said, see that 55-year-old woman over there with her husband? I said, yeah. He said, see that college kid over there, that girl over there? She's got her books out and her headphones on. I said, yeah. He said, see that heavy-set black girl over there? I said, yeah. He said, Barry, 
I can sleep with any one of them in 24 hours. That's my strength, and I'm ashamed of it. All through my life, since I was in high school and going to college, I could go in up to anybody. Didn't mean if they didn't matter if they had a boyfriend, they had a husband, they were single. I always had the game where I could approach a woman, and in 24 hours, I'd be having sex with her. I said, "That's fantastic. That's the key. The key is right there." He said, what are you talking about? I said, the key to an artist is what you just described. When you call that number on that empty lot and you reached out to that person, that millionaire who was buying there, you approached them and they didn't know you. When you go up to those girls when you were in college, you approached them, they didn't know you. You had to sell them on you. Now, in order for a girl to come home with you to a stranger's place, take off all her clothes, she had to feel safe. She had to know that you were going to take care of her and you were going to make her feel special. And she wasn't going to be just another person in your life that drifted through. And it's the same with the architectural job. You've got to convince that millionaire to write that check to you and to trust you with millions of dollars of funding and contractors and everything else. And if you can just apply that thing that you used to have with women that you told me about in this bar to architecture, you're going to be in great shape. He says, okay. That was at the beginning of the summer. Labor Day, I got a call. He says, can I take you out to dinner? I said, of course you can take me out to dinner. We go out to the same place, and he raises the glass, and he says, I just want to tell you, Barry, this summer I applied that thing in the bar, that thing that I did with the women to my architectural work, and I started calling people and making them feel safe, and I booked five jobs this summer. It's the most money I'll have ever made in a year in my entire career by three times. I want to thank you for that and I can only hope that everybody out there in the world can figure out a way to take something that's their strength that's dormant in them and bring it into their professional life so they can take their careers to the next level. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. My guest today, Patty Jenkins. She's best known for writing and directing Charlize Theron's Academy Award-winning performance in Monster, which we're going to get to. But she's done a lot of amazing things as well in terms of directing and writing and so many different great series that she's been a part of. Things like Arrested Development and Entourage. 
I'm so honored to have you here. Please welcome Patty Jenkins. Thank you. God, I think that's the nicest introduction I've ever gotten. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> it's all going to go downhill from here, though, believe me. <laughs> now, let's talk about what I don't like. <laughs> yes, and we will talk about what you don't like, and you'll be reduced to tears. Oh, after. No, no, I'm sorry. You know, yeah. That won't happen. I have so many things to talk about with you, and going way back. Now, some people, they're four years old, and they're dancing around their living room with a hairbrush saying, the sun will come out tomorrow. What is it that happened in your life? What was the moment that happened? When was it where you said, I want to be in the entertainment business? You know, it's funny because I actually have a weird answer for that, which is uh, there were two. The first was I was very vague because I had lived all over the world. And even though my mom is a real film buff, it just never, ever would have occurred to me that I could that there's a job to be a filmmaker, even though I was a fan of filmmakers. That was like for other people. Tell us why you lived all over the world and what was the first country or city that you remember and at what age were you and how many places did you live and what were some of those places? So my father was a fighter pilot. I was so I do have a very good memory of my childhood, but I also think that I I own, I just know I have a good memory of my childhood because I can mark where I was when. So I don't know. I think maybe everybody has a good memory of their childhood. But um, I was born on an Air Force base here in California that has been since closed down. And my father was being sent to Vietnam and uh, as a fighter pilot. And so my, and my mother was like a 70s rebel young you know feminist and so my mother did not want to stay my mother had also been a military brat and lived all over the world so my mom did not want to stay here so she decided to take us with her and that we went to cambodia while he was in vietnam which was so dodgy now like now that i look back like so we were in cambodia on our own not sanctioned to be there by the government but we were so my father air, the fighter pilots were stationed in cambodia so we were close to him all I know is that my mother very early on said, I can hear the bombs going off. And my dad said, that's impossible. And then called back like two days later and was like, get out of Cambodia. So it was like the secret bombings of Cambodia. Like I, I, it was all so dodgy. I can't, you know, and they were so young and it's so crazy. So then we moved to Thailand. My first memory is going there, which was I was I swear to God, I was three months old. <laughs> which is crazy except for i know that my first memory is laying in a box on the floor of a airplane looking out the window so my mom says that was when we flew to cambodia like that was on the trip over there which was epic and you know so i i so i remember from there little things you know you're the house in thailand but not not much you know foggy then from there we went to germany um, apparently we lived some other places in Europe around, you know, Spain and some other places. Then, um, at some, and then my mom and my dad split up. I mean, when I look back at it now, I was like, my mom was 21, two kids, 21, you know, you're like, you're teenagers. I don't, I don't, yeah. And my dad's off flying all the time. And so, um, of course, you know, they drift apart and, and they get divorced. And how old were you when that happened? Four. That was bad. I remember that. I do remember that. Um, and then we moved to San Francisco. My mom tries to put herself through school. We Mississippi, where my grandparents are, we're all over the place. And then my mom moves to Kansas. It's you, your mom, and who else? My sister. And then we end up in Kansas while my mom puts herself through school. So really, like, 
if there's any place I'm sort of from in a way, it's kind of Kansas because that's where I was the longest and I had the most consistency. Yet I never quite felt like I was from Kansas. Neither did Dorothy. Exactly. And you very much want to get out. And then throughout those years, we moved to England for a while. We came in, you know, and all these things. And uh, and my father passed away, which then is why the divorce is eclipsed. And how old were you? Seven. And certainly, you know, when we talk about my later work, that was hugely influential to my my curiosity in talking about how stuff can be absolutely not fair. Like things, your life can just go badly, you know, and my life has not gone badly. But the observation that like, wow, that's terrible, <laughs> you know, like that was that's a terrible thing. But besides that, I've, I've lived a very good life and stayed there um, and moved all over the place to have family in New York. I was in New York a lot. And then D.C. And then um, so the uh, but the answer to the question now now to get to the question. I don't know why it is, but I, you know, maybe it's the exposure to different things that I'd seen. I always remember living in England and seeing punk rockers. And I was like, oh, my God, that's the most incredible thing I've seen in my life and music, which I love music. And so I was very interested in music. The moment that I remember, and it's funny because I have other friends who are entertainers and many of them have moments where they saw a stage and they were like, that's what I want to do. Mine was predictably vague as somebody who would go on to be a film director mine was hilariously i was in junior high when new wave i mean i was in elementary school i was in like the fourth grade when new wave hit the states and gary newman released the song cars and adamant I think put his album out about then. And my first memory of wanting to do this was I was like my greatest fantasy in life would be to bring Gary Newman and Adam Ant to my elementary school to perform, even though nobody here knows who they are or cares. And I was like, (laughs) and when I look back, I think about what a funny thing that is, because I was like, I wanted to be involved with them and, and appreciate their work. And like and celebrate their work and have something to do with it. But I didn't want to be on the stage. And interestingly, because of the kind of work I've ended up being interested in, it wasn't even popular where I lived. I was like, what? because I feel this way all the time. And I'm like, what's your problem? Like, I'm really interested in stuff that's not commercial or going to help me. But yet I'm you're interested in what you're interested in. You can't help yourself. So that's my first moment. And then my second moment is also music related. Um, And then, by the way, the comedy thing, I don't know what it was, but it's funny when you look back at like what your education is and people talk about the movies that they saw. Well, I can't tell you any of that, but I saw every episode of Carol Burnett, um, Bob Newhart. Patty was looking around my office before we started. I have a signed album of Bob Newhart's on my wall called The Button Down Mind, which was the inspiration for me getting in this business and Patty just related the story that I hope she's going to tell right now about how her first comedy album came about. Yeah. Steve Morton's album was on sale at Woolworths. And I would take <laughs> my allowance and go and buy things. And I bought this record and it was my only record for years. And I listened to it over and over and over again. And then I ended up buying the other banjo, uh, another one later. But I, I listened to it obsessively. And the funny thing is Steve Martin became this figure in my dreams where I would dream about Steve Martin all the time. And he became this 
this person in my life where I'd be like, I dream about Steve Martin. Everybody would say, what's new? You dream about Steve Martin all the time. (laughs) So then Steve Martin got into my brain somehow. And it's funny because I've met Steve Martin once and I couldn't even talk to him. I was like, "Ah, nice to meet you. (laughs) I usually don't care, but I was like, ah, but what a huge, tremendous figure in my history. Today in comedy, if we were just at any comedy club and a guy comes on stage with rabbit ears and an arrow through his head, dancing around, saying, happy feet, I'm a wild and crazy guy. Comedians would be in the back. They'd be saying, what a fucking hack. I mean, come on, the guy's got an arrow through his head. I mean, where's the joke? But today, there's a different kind of comedy. If Louis C.K. or Zach Galifianakis were to go on 40 years ago in front of people like Steve Martin or Lenny Schultz. It all makes sense when you think about it. It's like the Steve Martin and, and, you know, you're coming out of a time of repression. And and I feel like all those comedians are doing what what nobody else wants to say. Like nobody else wants to lose control. And then it moves on to like being a popular character in the 80s and then now like louis ck the genius of it to me is i'm always like god he's being so truthful right now like i can't believe how really for real that comedy is so what gets you to feeling like you're going to be in a career in entertainment i think that when i think about why i'm an artist which you come back to periodically every time you think about what you're going to do next or whatever it is like well what am i trying to get out of this the one thing I always think, and I definitely think my my father passing away was huge in this, is I'm a very romantic person. And I don't know that's because my opposite sex parent was taken away or whatever, you know, the romantic love that you missed out on from your upbringing or whatever. But I'm very romantic and I like emotions. I like them. I'm very romantic about like what they are, but I like truthful within there so like a kind of accepting the darkness and all of that stuff and so I was always very drawn to that and then I think bonded with that was uh, a belief that life was not going to be terribly pleasant because of my father dying and then really feeling like I wanted to live these things by making them because I was said, well, you know, who knows what's going to happen really in life. Life is kind of crappy, but I want to live great love and great, beautiful things so I can make them. But then I didn't know I, I didn't know where to do that. Like, that's what I was interested in. And that I would I would I would receive it most in the form of music. But I wasn't interested in playing music, even though I had played violin for a long time. I, you know, I did not like the violin. And uh And then I just was in the arts. I was not going to succeed in anything else. I was not interested in anything else. So I was in the hardcore scene in my youth. So I was very involved in music and then painting, photography, you know, and that was all we did. Make flyers and paint pictures and, you know, mess around with music. So then I heard about a school that was a great art school that was free. And I just became laser focused on getting in there from the time I was in junior high. I was like, I'm going to Cooper Union in New York City. I'm getting out of here. And so then all of my sights were were on the ambition of like, I'm going to that school and that's and that's what's that's what I want to do. There's something art, painting, whatever. And literally within two months of getting there, I took an experimental film course. When I took this experimental film course, Peter, Peter Gabriel had started making soundtracks and the soundtrack to Birdie rocked my world. And I listened to it all the time. 
and the images and the emotions that it would evoke in me. And then he did the passion, the images and the emotions he invoked in me. I was like, that's what I want. Like, that's what I want to do. And so the first time I sat down and I, and I was not being narrative yet, but I put image to music. I was like, it was the first time I had a pure relationship with art where instead of doing it for ambition to get into Cooper or whatever, I was literally could not stop. And so I was sitting there moving images to music to move images to music and then trying to think about how I was going to elicit those emotions, you know, like and then it leads you to story. And, and immediately I was done with two-dimensional art because it was always my problem. My paintings were always very narrative. They were almost like movie posters, but it was just not enough. You know, like it wasn't it wasn't getting to what I wanted, which was that emotion. You're in New York, the most expensive city in the world. You've already established that your mom didn't have a lot of money and mm -hmm. was traveling all over the place. How did you survive? Cooper's free. And that was part of the ambition of getting in there. My sister had gone to Bryn Mawr and I knew that that was very hard. And I love waiting tables because it's not about the money. I like working. And it was a very zen, like social job that I enjoyed. So I waited tables at dojos from 89 to 93. I love that Every place. day. So you, did you go to the Boston Comedy Club? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that was my club that I owned. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Did not know that. So when I was in New York, I had my office at 57th Broadway. And there was this amazing shitty diner. And you'd order this amazing meal and all this stuff. And it'd be like $12. And I had a wonderful server who was always there, similar to how you yeah. were. Just a love waiter thing. And if I felt generous at that time in my life, maybe I gave her $5 on it. And then I remember one day I did this deal with Chappelle. And it was a great overall deal. And I thought, oh, I'm going to treat myself. And I went to the Four Seasons. And this wonderful woman served me, and she was such a great server. And the bill came to $50, and I gave her maybe 20 Same profession, same job, same skill set. Yet one woman chose to work in a place where she can only make 33% of what the other person made. It's the same with everything in life, every job you ever take. You get what you are willing to put in, and that's all there is. So 
I at dojos could walk straight from school, hair a mess, paint on my hands. <laughs> I had massive amount of tables, huge amounts of tables you would end up having. The turnover was so quick and it was like an athletic sport and none of it mattered that much. So really my head was in my own game. So you're in New York, you're waitressing, you have some money, you're living. I was living in the worst area because we were very i don't know we were just interested in all that stuff you know we we're like interested in being tough and interested in all that stuff so we were living on avenue c and 10th street and it was very dodgy and then you know many people of the hardcore scene that were kind of drifting out of the hardcore scene were congregating on avenue a and so we were at the wawa hut and the alcatraz you know these two bars that we all went to all the time and so that was my life you haven't written anything yet you haven't shot anything yet I start shooting things really badly because I, I approach it and this continues for many years. I approach it like a painter. So instead of just reading a book about it, I just start trying. Do you know you're bad? Uh, I know I'm not good, but I don't know. I don't know that being good is going to be as, as clear as it will. And you'll end up understanding it to be. So you're still immature and in the arts you're kind of like i don't know maybe it's good i don't know what it is you know um you're just trying stuff but i knew enough to know oh i don't know my craft that well and i don't want to transfer to a film school that i have to pay for and frankly i'm glad i, I didn't want to go to film school at that age anyway because i think that the legitimate conversations about the business ruins you at that age like i i hate the art world from what i learned about the art world at that such a young age it just killed the art of it you know the agents and blah, blah, you know and so i'm glad i didn't but i decided okay i'm gonna go work in film and i want to work in commercials because i just want to learn technique and i don't want to be on a movie for a year as a pa you know it's too long so I don't know why that was my thought. I found a commercial production house that was owned by two women who had the American Express account and the Nike account at the time, Epoch Films. And I just bugged them until they finally let me intern. And then I hated it. I hated being an intern. I was their worst intern because I was sitting in the office and I hated that. So then I got onto a set finally, and, and which is really what I wanted to do. Like at, as an intern, they want you to make phone calls and do things like that. And it just wasn't, I wasn't good at it. And I got onto set. A friend of mine from high school in DC had was a the loader in the camera department, and he was like, "Oh man, I'm going to introduce you to these camera guys." I met those guys, and they only worked with people they trained. So I became uh, uh, an AC for the next eight years. That's a camera person, and in the camera department on film, there are you know th generally two. And then in a, in a film up to, you know, five or six people in the camera department where you are the ones who build the camera, put the film in the camera, focus the camera, pick out the equipment, make sure everything's working and all of that. It was a very technical job, but it was a great job because I did commercials and music videos. I hit the music video thing right as hip hop was hitting New York hip hop videos. So I did every, you know, crazy hip hop, you know, Wu-Tang and Mary J and Biggie. Uh, once or twice, I was the only white person on the set, but that's sadly was not that common still because there were not crew people enough to be, you know, it still wasn't, hadn't become a black film world. So there were lots of hip hop videos, but ton of young men who were doing music videos and any women, 
No. Well, one, Diane Martell, I think, was doing videos at that time, but or she was. I worked with her. But um, Brett Ratner and, you know, Puffy started branch. Puffy was working with Brett at first, and then he puffed out, uh, branched out on his own, and Hype Williams and all, all kinds of people. What would you say is the key to the technique of directing a music video versus the technique of directing, let's say, an hour drama or film. Totally different. And you know what? I wouldn't even really know because it was never, I never was interested in doing it. So I didn't ever focus on it. It was, I knew that it wasn't my thing because I knew, and I still actually feel this way. There's a line in the sand and you're interested in what you're, there's probably several things, but to me, those things are about making film cool and look cool and I was all about emotion so it wasn't I love the emotion of music and yet I'm surprised with my love of music I never wanted to do it but I was never going to hit those emotional things I wanted doing a music video you know like in fact I was only going to take a song that I love down a notch because my favorite songs I don't want to see somebody's video of it I want to just hear the song you know personally um so I, so I, I only will say that because, so I went there for eight years and then I was like, this is it. You either like buy a house and move to the Island and marry the key grip or like, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you got if you want to be a filmmaker, it's funny what a fa- Okay. This is something I will tell your audience who, if it's about struggling, I wish I could tell every 24 to 28 year olds in the world to fucking relax <laughs> because <laughs> you take yourself so seriously at that age and you think that it is make it or break it time. I mean, I remember wanting to die at 23 when I was like wow 23 haven't made a very far have you you're an AC good good for no movies you haven't made a movie at all and then in retrospect I'm like thank god I didn't get success as a filmmaker in my 20s like you just but even 28 you're like that was it I failed it's over (laughs) you think that's that you think that's middle-aged you actually think that's middle-aged now I'm 42 I'm like oh my god that middle age was way later than I thought it was and everybody didn't make it till they were 30 you know anyway um so then when I went to film school I was segueing there because it was only once I got to film school I had to truly focus on every habit I had seen in the music video and commercial world mostly the commercial world I'd paid more attention to the Nike commercials and the you know working with high fashion photographers and things like that it's your eye I I could say it as simply as one's superficial and one's not but that's a belittling way of saying it's not that your eye's in a different place so your eye is literally on the screen when you're making something uh, for style. It's got to look just so. And when you're making something emotional, your eye's not literally on the screen. It's like inside your own like prefrontal frontal cortex. You're like building a pyramid that's going to turn into the emotion that you want it to. And like the visual, the literal visual matters far less. You're like, you're, I'm... So I, I had to learn that and really think about that. But I almost feel like f- narrative filmmaking is like tightening a coil. So every step you have to make sure you're at the right place and tightening that coil so that it goes whoosh when you want it to. And the biggest thing that people have to get over is if you're used to your eye being on the screen, literally, that doesn't add up to anything necessarily. It can. Some people like Fincher can do both amazingly you know he's got an amazing eye and he understands story intuitively or kubrick or whatever but it doesn't necessarily can look amazing and add up to nothing you know so 
your priorities are in two different places. Take me to the next step where you decide you want to really take the leap and do something that maybe you write. When does that happen? So around 28 and I'm feeling completely like a failure or like I'm, I, I can't, I'm starting to not be able to sleep so I can tell like there's something wrong. I'm not satisfied. I want more. Brian Callen gets mad TV. And so Brian is going to move. I remember that. Yeah. And Brian's going to move to LA and we are together. And I say, oh my God, like what's going to happen? Are we going to, are like, am I going to LA with him or am I not? And coincidentally, uh, I, I work on a Michael Jackson video where the cameraman, a guy named Peter uh, Levy, a cinematographer, says something to me about AFI. So he just says, well, yeah, you don't want to go to film school because, you know, whatever. And he's the only AFI I think they let you get in is just what you are. I didn't want to go hold a boom. I've been on a crew. You know, I've been I'm a first AC at this point and which is the head of the camera department. I've done thousands of jobs and like I don't want to go learn how to run a sound deck because I already know I don't want to. do. So you're in the union. Oh, yeah. I was in the union very early on. You know, what do ACs get paid back then? PA was making 150 a day. A second AC was making or loaders probably 250 a day. And by the time I was a first, it was 500 a day, I think 10 hours. And then oftentimes, you know, because of the way music videos were going, you could end up on 30 hour days, you know. I don't think you're going to be back at Dojo after that. No. And also there were other opportunities, you know, they like being an intern at MTV I've, I, or like I got a, a job. I got an offer to be an um, intern at the, at the Daily Show, which I think back now, I'm like, what a different life that would have led to. But it was just not enough money after I started ACing. So anyway, so I hear about a, out AFI, and Brian is get, has gotten Mad TV, and so I apply, and then we break up. But then I get in, <laughs> and then, and it was just that was what was happening. It was my only way out, and it was sad because I'll always remember sitting in my closet. I had this apartment, and I could sit in my closet, and my apartment was empty. And I thought, God damn it, I loved living on the Upper West Side. It was the happiest my whole life of living all over the place. And seventy six between Columbus and Central Park West was like the happiest I'd ever been. I lived in Lincoln Towers. Oh, did you? Oh. I was like, I was so happy, and I thought, I cannot believe I'm leaving here. But you. You know what you can't get you can't get there from here you know like i'm either going to sit in this studio apartment and you're never moving to central park west you know like you're not whatever the parallel is i there's nowhere else to go from here i have to go to la so i went to la and i worked on exercising the bad influences of commercials and music videos and made a bunch of short films and i always wrote them because for whatever reason i have specific desire i am not a good writer i think i'm good at certain things and i think i'm okay at writing it's incredibly hard for me you know and um but yet still to this day you know 20 years after this all started i still see what i want to do so clearly that only i can write it i've tried to get other people to write it i've tried to work with other people but it's like so still to this day, I write. So I wrote all my short films. Was there one of the short films that even you, as critical as you are, look at it and say, that one I'll stack up against anybody? No, I would not say that. But I would say I was I, I was intrigued because I, I decided AFI is not the best place to make award-winning shorts because of the style of how they do it. It's all collaborative, so you can't really just do what you want to do. 
but I did one about an architect, an architect who'd been doing commercial buildings his whole life and decided to enter an architecture competition. And it was a very small, dry story. And it was where I think I hit my stride for the first time where I was like, oh, there's something because I was trying very poppy things, which are hard to do on a low budget. And that was where I was like, wow, okay, that was very interesting. Was that the first time you said to yourself, I can do this as a professional? I didn't even think I said it then. It didn't matter anymore. The nice thing about the progression of my life is I've been desperate enough each time that I've gotten anywhere, I've snapped over to the place of, you know what? I don't give a fuck anymore. At this point, <laughs> it's got to happen, you know? And honestly, the moment I had right before Monster, right before I did Monster, was one moment I'll never forget because I, you know, you're so hard on yourself. Do I deserve? Is my work good enough? Is it blah, blah, blah? And I was standing in a video store and I just snapped. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. All these, I'm getting my, I don't care if I'm good or not. If that guy can get that movie made, I am getting a movie made at one. I'm getting one movie made at least. You could drag me out of this town. I am not leaving here without making at least one movie. You got to be kidding, you know? And so I think I, I've never felt like I'm good. I've always felt like I want that's really interesting. You've never felt like you're good. You just felt like I want. I think self-doubt will always take you down if you if you think about it. Of course, you're yeah. not as good as who you want to be. You know, it's just I got I, every step I've ever made. I'm like, you got to at least try to so just forget it. Who cares? Maybe you're good. Maybe you're not good. Maybe you're talented. Maybe you're not talented. At some point, you got to just move forward. Hey, everybody. I'm really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over a hundred chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site and if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. So uh, how does it come about that you find this story? So I am a true crime buff. I have like 10 shows TV'd right now. And the funny thing about TV is I only watch comedy and true crime. Like that's all <laughs> I watch on TV. It's very funny, unless there's a show I really love. Um, I had been in Florida. I was on a road trip with a friend of mine. The summer, Eileen Warnes was killing people. So I was very aware of her from since 1990, but nobody knew it was her. And there was also a male serial killer active at the same time in Florida. So it was unclear what was happening. And then she got caught. I think it was in 90 that she got caught, but maybe it was 89 that she got caught. Um, 
so I followed it very carefully from day one, you know, and I was just intrigued like, um, and, and, and bothered by the way her story was reported because I never felt like, um, and there've been several stories like that I've encountered in my life where you're just kind of like, really people, you can't be perceptive enough to look at that person and see that they don't just hate men and they love killing them like she's like a feral animal backed into a corner she had these terrified uh, deeply abused eyes and it was just tragedy you know like it was and and yet the way she was reported is like oh she's a man-hating lesbian she hates and i was like what i'm just amazed that that's as like deep as you guys can go this is person's been hooking has been in j has been in the hospital from being beaten into the hospital many times i mean what's so hard to figure out here you know yet it was intriguing because you're like wow a hooker turned the tables and started killing the johns so anyway as the years went by i was just always remembered her story um so i had graduated from afi my short film had gotten into the AFI Fest, which is not as automatic as as one would think. And I was so I was psyched that it was in. But I was writing a thriller that took place around the World Trade Center and 9-11 happened. And so I went to this festival with nothing, you know, so it wasn't like uh, I had some project that I was able to pedal. And they had this thing called the Kodak Connect program where they sat young filmmakers who had films in the festival across from people in the industry. And I was totally unprepared because I had I was, I was writing a thriller, which really is about downtown New York City. I wouldn't want to do it anywhere else. And now that face of that is completely changed forever. And so I met a lot of people who I now know in the industry and sat was was lucky enough to sit across from Brad Wyman, who is a producer, still my dear friend, who he literally said to me. Uh, you probably don't even want to waste your time talking to me because I'm really not even in the industry anymore. Let me be honest with you. I'm selling printer cartridges online. I don't even want to do this. And I just have one client. He won't let me go. And there's plenty of other people you should be talking to. And I, and that's actually exactly what he said. And I said, that's hilarious. Like I've never heard anything. And he's like curmudgeon as all hell. And so I said, what movie are you making? He said, oh, I'm making this movie about Ted Bundy and, you know, <laughs> blockbusters making these serial killer movies. And I, the conversation went like this. Oh, well, you should, you should make one about uh, Eileen Warnus. That's an incredible story. And he goes, well, you should, you're not going to get anything else made. And I was like, <laughs> uh, and he said, I'm not the one green lighting them, but I'll introduce you to that person. And literally that's, a, you know, we want to talk about life lessons for people struggling in their world. I pushed on the door for 12 years and then I fell through the door. It was like the door opened. It wasn't a good idea either, by the way. I met with the people doing those films. Shady. Everything about it was shady. I was going to get paid nothing. But I just want to point out something you said. Yeah. There's an old expression. You hit a rock with a hammer. And 99 times, you know, nothing happens. Right. You hit it the hundredth time, it breaks open. Exactly. And why does it break open? I'm here again, by the way, in my career. Right now I'm pushing and I'm pushing and I'm pushing and I've been pushing on a few movies. But I'm I'm telling myself, I'm like, look, they're either gonna, the door's going to open or the door's not going to open. You know, you can do just do what you can do. What were the chances you were going to be at that table? I almost didn't go either. Like, I, I think about how... 
much I didn't want to go to that Kodak to Connect program thinking, oh, this is one of those bullshitty, going to advance your career things. And the, the, the least likely conversation changed my entire life, like changed my entire life. Because he said that and he followed through and he introduced me to the people and and I started and I'll always remember I was working on something I was working on an exercise video for a friend at the time and I was editing it with another friend of mine from AFI and I remember telling him I met this guy and he said they're making these serial killer movies and I'll always remember both of us saying like that's sounds dodgy you know (laughs) like not sounding and I I remember saying I'm desperate I just I have to go forward I started working on it but you didn't have the rights before you started writing or no no and I started looking into it and what really happened was those blockbuster movies were being made for so little money what's so little money five hundred thousand dollars and you determined with all your experience that the amount of money you needed to make this come out the way you wanted to come out would be how much money I did not know but what I did know was this they wanted to make a straight to video product which was going to which in the in the one sense the greatest thing that ever happened to me was that I aimed at the B-movie genre and those things can get made you know it's just like oh lesbian serial killer sure here's a check you know like the, the whatever what then I said to myself was was okay man if you're going to make a movie what are the greatest movies that have ever been made like that like how what is the you know okay in cold blood okay taxi driver what like let's get in badlands let's get into it like if if you're going to do it how can you make it great and then I fell in love like then as I started to work on it I started to get I started to see it and I started to be potent there started to be potential and I got afraid that I would be put in a position to do something I was morally uncomfortable with by making the women too hot or too sexy or something, you know, and, and I just ended up saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing any of the deals. And I called Brad Wyman. So you have to convince people to do something when you have no evidence that you can do it. This is where it's tricky. And I'm grateful because I start writing it. I start to see it as something bigger. Eileen Warnes is writing me back. And then I start to really, I think I realize it's Charlize that I want. I write Don't Stop Believing into it. All of these things start to happen where I'm like, oh my God. And the Don't Stop Believing moment, which is still one of the scenes I'm the most proud of in my life, was the first time I was like, that's what I've wanted to do since I started, is put music to picture and make you fucking feel that thing that transcends, where I'm not co-opting Don't Stop Believing, but I'm combining it with something else and making a third thing. And so I start to want this desperately. Like I see the movie. And you're writing it for Charlize. How did you know, number one, that she had the ability to do this kind of film and the ability to transform into who you want her to be? Did you just have an instinct? I did just have an instinct and I didn't know for sure. You never do know. You're ro- and With that kind of a difference, you're rolling the dice. But what I did know was what I needed and I needed uh, a truly tough person and I needed someone who worked hard and who didn't wink to the camera when they thought something was stupid and I saw that she was unvain in shots that I'd seen of her I was like she's not vain and ever and then I watched a bunch of movies even movies that I didn't like and she was always trying like she was always trying and I knew that it was going to take that too and then it comes down to genuinely just animal sense Men 
I'm always so interested by men's opinion of other male actors and things because men suss out who they think is real and who they don't. And the hardest thing to find in Monster was a woman who I genuinely believed was that tough, but who also was incredibly vulnerable and emotional. Those are the two things I saw in Charlize. And as an animal, when you meet Charlize, she's a powerful person. And so it was real, yet she's very kind and, and warm and all those other things. So that was it. It wasn't about really her looks, even though, frankly, Eileen Warnes had been a very good looking woman when she was younger. So that to me wasn't as radical as it was to other people. I was like, she's gonna, Eileen Warnes had great bone structure. She could have yeah. been a beautiful woman if things had gone differently, you know? The expectation, the necessity on this movie was so low that I was accidentally hitting the mark, you know, because even by aiming higher, it's like, but I, but I have lesbian serial. I do have lesbian serial killers. Oh, you want lesbian serial? Oh yeah. Well, I've got those, you know? And it's like the bar was very low. So the opposite of what you are preparing for, like, am I good enough? Can I get this movie made? So two things happened. The bar is super low. Eileen Warnes started writing me and now and then she gets executed she was executed for killing seven, seven men. men in florida yeah it, it became a place where it, the question was no longer was i good enough to direct this and this helped me through the whole process the question was no one was directing it at this point but me because i had been given a moral obligation that was no joke i was like i can't be involved in putting this out into the world if this is an exploitation film about her or about the victims or if it crosses any lines i was like now i'm the one who's been given so she ended up giving me all of her personal letters and all of these things and that's not that i owe a debt to eileen warnes i owe a debt to the truth the day she died what were the emotions going through your head at that point it was sad, you know, it was sad, but I was actually okay with it because she was such a tortured mind that I was happy for her to be free. Like there was no way for her to keep going. There's what do you do? I mean, she was, she hated herself and tortured herself and yet felt like she could never explain her background. It was an ugly mind to be trapped in. Did Selby visit her in prison? No. Selby had no contact with her um, at some, after some point. They wrote to each other for about, I think, four or five years. And then she moved on with her life and uh, not at the end. When Eileen died in 2002 by a lethal injection, where were you in the screenplay? Were you done? I was done and we were a month away from shooting. I see the whole thing. And by the way, it feels possible for whatever reason. I'm like, why wouldn't we get the money? It's like you could feel everything lining up. I'm like, so-and-so could make their money off of it. And I, you know, but yet still I'm an, I'm an amateur really of getting a movie made. And so Brad had said to me, just when you're done, just give me the script at this point, finish it. He did a good job of like, when I, when I said I was walking away, he's like, well, you better finish it at least. Um, and I feel, I actually am very proud of that script because I feel like that I hit some very truthful places in there for me. And so I, I'm very, I, I'm very pleased with that script. So you give it to him and what is he So doing? I give it to him. He's like, ah, he's ambivalent. And he's kind of like, all right, I'll make it. I'm, I'm going to make it. I'll make it. Okay. So then now he starts the ball rolling and it's thanks to him that all of those questions you're going to ask about the middle about like, how did you get to direct it? Brad has been around this industry for a long time and his father was a huge entertainment lawyer before him. And so Brad just understood power dynamics well enough that he was like, 
million people get their first time movie made. Why aren't you good enough? Why wouldn't you? And I, I remember these very funny moments where, you know, here I am thinking about like, can I get my first movie made? And there was somebody who questioned whether I should be the director at some point coming along. And I had showed uh, Brad a, a video of my pit bull hanging from a rope in a tree swimming. And he goes, send him that fucking video. And I go, uh, I can't send that guy a video. He's like a financier. And he was like, send him the fucking video. And I sent him the video and Brad goes, that's, that's why that's, that's all I've got to show you. Uh, what are you going to do? She owns the script. And I ended up staying on it. He's like, yeah, fuck that dude. He can't ask you. You own the full fucking thing. Fuck them. But he just understood power dynamics enough that he mm-hmm. was like, if you own the script and actors are wanting to work with you, nobody has any right to question you. Why can't you do it? You're the one with holding the power. They don't hold the power, you know. And so he just kind of did that through the whole process until I was. So anyway, the, the thing is, it wasn't going to cost very much money. And the thing that I hadn't figured into it was women are desperate for a good role. So the script took off in the town. I had the opposite of what I have had since, which is instead of it being like this long development process. My first draft got green lit and we were supposed to be shooting three months later. And it was like a train, runaway train, because the expectations were so low. Women wanted to play that role. And it only costs a million dollars and you have movie stars coming out. People think you're a millionaire when you're doing something. I got paid for Monster $65,000. I don't get any residuals. I've never gotten anything after the fact. $65,000 was what I made. And so the entire run of the success of Monster, I was like living this hilarious dual existence of like these events. Nobody cared about me, so they're not going to loan me a dress and some shoes. But I didn't have any dresses or shoes. But if you said, I'm not going... They would have found a way to finance the dress and shoes. But I would never have told them that I couldn't get a dress or shoes. You have Charlize in mind for this role, but there's other women, really, really great actresses that are coming to you. And now you're in a position of power. Some of the most powerful agents, managers are calling you. Yes. And you're saying, well, thank you very much. I really have a vision for this. Come on, just meet with her. So who were some of the people who were fighting to get this role, or at least their agents and managers were fighting for them to get it? And there was a story about Jim Carrey and Nicolas Cage, Milos Forman directed yeah. Man in the Moon. They both wanted it badly. And he said, well, if you want it, you can audition for me. Right. And they had to go in and read for him. So were there some actresses who were so established, they're like, look, no one's going to know. My agent managers are going to know. I want to come in here and want to do this. Yeah, not you. huge. The huge ones didn't, but uh-huh. I had some well-known middle. I remember Jay Moore, who you did his yeah, podcast. Yeah. He did a movie called Playing by Heart, an amazing movie with Sean Connery and Angelina Jolie and Ellen Burstyn. And he played a, a young man dying of AIDS. I never and saw I, that. And I remember I see that. It was a Saturday. He had to do the audition at the person's house, the director's house. He said, Bear, I'm going to call you afterwards. I'm going to do something there. I'm going to get this gig. I said, okay. He calls me afterwards. Goes to the director. They're about to read in the living room. He said, can I ask you a favor? And the guy said, sure. Can we do this in your bedroom? Okay. Go in the bedroom. And without asking, he crawls into the guy's bed. Whoa. With the sheets above him on the pillow, props himself up and pretends like he's the guy in the hospital bed. Wow. Telling the story. 
and that's what got him the that's gig. That's amazing. And so I just was wondering if yeah. there were people that really tried to get to you. And was there somebody that blew you away that actually, if you didn't have Charlize, and even though she was such a household name, somebody that came in and just really fucked you up and you were like, Jesus, I mean, this person I would hire in an instant if I could, but mm -hmm. I can't. Did that there happen? Were, yeah, there was. I'll always remember Mary McCormick because I remember looking at Mary and I knew she could do it. And it's funny because we're friendly now. And I remember first seeing her after I'd made Monster and there was this smile and she like shook her head and she was like, God damn it. And she and I both knew that she could have done it and she could have been great. And but I, I couldn't have gotten the movie made with her and she knew it, you know, and that was very sad. Maria Bello was also somebody who I was like, she's really great. And but so those two people were people who but I wa I wanted Charlize. So when you meet with Charlize and she ends up becoming a producer on it because that's what you have to do to get anybody at a certain point. You have to give them the credit, give them the power. And you're sitting down across from somebody who is nowhere near at your level. It's like if I were to meet the president. Mm hmm. You're at the time an embryo mm -hmm. and she's a full grown woman. Mm -hmm. If she wanted to, she could easily take control. So you had to figure out how to navigate and scenes that always mean the most to me. And I don't know why, because I'm a comedy guy, are the scenes when the camera is on somebody and it's not moving. And there's that thing that happens in their Inside, eyes and, 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 and it's just here and then yeah. the eyes start welling up. And you know that even though it is a one million or four million dollar film, you know that every time this happens, there's not just one take. Yeah. So you know that when you had the close up on her, I mean, at the least you did it three times. Yeah, we did. A, we did a lot of takes. So. As a director, do you have to get that out of her or was she the kind of actress that channeled something inside and just knew what you wanted? Both. So, so the funny thing is, is talking about how that whole journey happened, the whole experience of Monster, and I think that this is true in the best directing scenarios, it's, it's moved on to being something about something so much further than you. So in that case, I was like possessed. I, I felt like I was possessed with the responsibility and possessed with the feeling that it was something that should be made, you know? And so then it becomes about the movie, truly. So even when I went into Charlize, I've never been so clear about what I wanted. I wanted her. I believed she was the right person. So it was super intimidating. And she was very like, I don't get it. You, you're like, what's your what's your deal that you're coming after me? And I think suspicious because like these are women who are used to being taken advantage of. It's could be a TNA movie. Everybody involved is like a low budget thing. So she wasn't suspicious of me, but she was genuinely suspicious of what the why would somebody come after her for this? Did her team want her to do it? Her late manager, J.J. Harris, did. Took it on, like, saw it and believed in it. And she lobbied to get Charlize to take a look at it. And um, so her manager did. This is where you did have control. You wrote the story. Mm -hmm. You got the letters from the actual person mm -hmm. before they died. So no one had that info. Mm -hmm. No one had that intel. No, no one ever had she has to listen to you. Right. If you're giving her direction on something, 
There's no way she's going to say, well, she would never do that. So you were in control. I was. And but also we were partners in that, too. Like we both we both did a lot of research together and we both made a pact to be truthful about what we were seeing. And luckily, we really bonded on this issue. So we saw it very similarly. So when you started casting the rest of the roles, I imagine she, even though she would never admit it publicly, had veto power over the major roles she that never came did in. that she was very supportive and she was very um you know she was getting up to speed so she was at that point i was already so far down the road and then by the time we're shooting we're kind of more up to speed with each other but she wasn't she had her opinions but she wasn't she, you know but the day she we hired her i was definitely like wow let's hope for the best because this person could fire you or dislike it or we're like that's the power is definitely she was definitely the powerful person it just we got lucky what day of the shooting you got home exhausted you crawled into the fetal position and you said to yourself this is going to be fucking huge my conscious self was aware that a million things were going to go wrong. And I feel like that moment gets stolen from you because oftentimes you're always dealing with such huge problems. Like people, you know, they sold the video out from under it. So now no studio is going to buy it. And you're just, you're, you're, you're failing all the time. Every time you make a film every day, it's so precarious. And we had no distribution and we were a laughing stock at that point too, by the way. And she was, she was successful then, but she wasn't who she is now. You know why she is who she is now? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, look. It's because she took a risk. Exactly. She's taken a lot of risks. And she took a risk on somebody who had never done it before. Definitely. And she bet on you. And like Brad, she sat in the room with you. (laughs) And she fell in love with who you were and what you were about and your passion. Because she looked at you and said, what's wrong with you? And it was the romanticism, not of love, but of the love of making high art yes and i loved this movie and i did and that that i did love this movie you know and i feel like um yeah i mean i feel like i i never i i never had a time to stop and i i could but i here's what i could feel i had learned in making my short films my last short film was a film that i loved on paper and then i let the process take it away from me and on the days I was sitting on set, we were having so many problems that I didn't feel it. But I thought, well, it's probably there. So when did you know? Oh, every day on Monster, I was like, this is fucking happening. So I swore to myself after my last film, I said, don't ever. My last short film, I said, I'm never doing that again. I'm never going to sit on set and and let it not happen on set. And I still think this is my strength is my biggest strength is I have is I have learned how to tune everything out and emotionally drop into what I really see happening right then and there. It was hard on Charlize because it wasn't a logical step. So if I didn't, there was, I remember one scene, she was doing a great performance, but I wasn't feeling it. I just was not feeling it, not feeling it. And I was so hard on her. Because I was like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not crying. I should be crying. It's the bus station when she sends Selby away. It was great on paper, but I wasn't feeling it. And she was so exhausted. And we'd been shooting like 10 pages a day. And like, we just kept going until all of a sudden something clicked. And I was sobbing. And I was like, it happened. And you can't tell where the line is. But that's the strength that I brought 
if anything, that I still think is 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 the thing that I care about the most is like you got to go to like a basal state and actually see it because you're what you never, ever, ever want to do is show up to the editing room and realize that all that work and you never got it. All that work, all those people, all that stuff. And then you moved on and it, it didn't happen. It's not to say you do 20 takes and it's not to say you do it on everything. But when the moments you need them, it to happen, it better happen right here and right now. You know, I remember being the- on a movie with Howard Deutsch, best friends girl with Kate Hudson. And it was a scene where he wanted her to cry and he kept asking her to do it again and again and again. And after he cut after the fourth time, she looked at him and says, Howard, I'm not fucking crying for you. I'm not going to do it. I'm not fucking crying in this scene. Wow. That's a moment you don't want to be in. I was going to say this is the same as comedy. It's either funny or it's not funny. And there's millions of intangibles and comedy is very much the same. It's like you can't talk about it because it's not an intellectual process. So you can't say we did two takes. That was funny. He said the joke. You're like, but it didn't make it's not funny. I don't know why something has to happen that makes it funny. And it either is funny or it's not funny. And you have to fuck around until you get it there. And it could go it could be anything that's the problem so there's no money to promote the film there's no money to do a campaign how did she get nominated for an academy award this is a tight rope walk and that's why i'm saying i knew that what we had done was something that i was super proud of and i was like that's i love it you know like that's what i wanted to do and i love it and i think it's great i don't know what other people think so when you saw the finished product in front of an audience you again walked away and did you think to yourself flawless no 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 (laughs) oh my god will that day come no in fact it's funny i have the funniest memory of the premiere because every i had my moments in the editing where it's like when i edited certain scenes i was like oof i love it this is sometimes those moments in the editing room are the moments you've waited for i've waited for my whole life where i put music to it and i cut it and it makes me cry every time i see it and i'm like i did it i don't know whether it what it will be to other people but that made me feel what i wanted to feel by the time you're done with the movie you're like it's this is where I'm saying like the champagne moment never comes. It's like one problem after another. And the funniest story is Steve Perry had uh, in the process of getting the song Don't Stop Believing became literally my best friend at that time and still <laughs> one of my best friends because he gave, stopped everything, came out of seclusion and finished the film with me for four months every day to the point of like I was having moments where I was really losing it with different things. And he would like drive me to a musician's house and record music to put in the thing. And like, he made it, he pushed me, helped me go across the finish line. So I'll always remember sitting in the premiere of monster. Um, and Steve was sitting next to me and the entire time we were like, God, damn it the fucking crickets got how did we told them bring the sound down on the crickets are back. <laughs> and so the entire time you're like perseverating over you you you're you're left at the last stop which was the last stop you were on was the sound mix and you're like did you hear the subwoofers they're totally high not in the center channel the voice is in the wrong place that was my entire the whole time steve and i were like this is ridiculous like and then you've forgotten that other people were like Oh my God, Charlize is Eileen Warnish. You're like, what? Oh yeah, no, that was so last year. We're like over (laughs) that part. We've moved on to something else. But yeah, so I feel like I, but I will tell you this. I hope I, 
I hope that this happens to me many times in my life. But what was wonderful about that movie was I knew that I was happy with it, which then buffers you so much from so many things because you're like, I don't know, you can like it or you can not like it. That's the movie that I that's the movie I wanted to make. And I did feel that. And I still love so many things about it. So you're at the Academy Awards. You're somebody who is waitressing a dojo, living in a studio apartment, making shitty short films that you felt were horrible. You said you were a horrible writer, and you're there, and you're sitting in a group of people around your star who's nominated. The envelope... What happens to you at that moment? I thought I was going to lose my mind. It was the culmination of everything. But the funny thing was I had been very fixated on her winning an Oscar from very early on. And not because... um, And it was funny. When she was nominated, it it was her nomination, of course. But it meant so much for the film that it was all I had been focused on. Like, I was sort of like, you you could win any other award you want. Nobody cares, you know? Like, uh, I mean, I care. I got Best First Feature at the, the Spirit Awards. Not going to change the success of the film. We had no money to promote the film. And from very early on, I was like, oh, my God, she could win Best Actress. And she should. And only if she does does this movie have a prayer. Like, this, 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 is, this, is, this is it. This is it. Like the only thing this entire movie rests on her performance. And it was one of those movies that came out for a couple of days in December just to get yeah. the nomination or however it works. And then the Academy Awards were a short time later. So a lot of people hadn't even seen the film. No. Charlize and I were both against releasing it that quickly, but it was just how it happened. So you're yeah. at the Academy Awards. We were exhausted by that point. The, the thing that you would never think is... That whole process of having a successful film, and particularly for me because it was zero to 60, like I went from knowing, having no agent, no manager, knowing nothing about the industry to like the barrage of, a, of, some, of this moment so quickly, no, nothing leading up to it. You're attending multiple events a day, in my case with no money and no one to drive me. And so it's like your head's going to explode. So it's the, 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 the Oscars was the end of a two-year marathon to try to get the movie seen and to be what it is and it was I was so happy for her I was so proud of her but it was also like a deep breath I took I took Brad with me and Brad and I sat there and I was like oh I cannot believe we did it like we got it because it was it really was like about to be a disaster at every step you know so it was just and I was I was grateful I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilledjfk.com, look at the trailer, Buy this documentary, I guarantee you, it will blow you away. I wanted to ask you this question, which is the most difficult question to ask an artist, especially an extraordinary artist like you. And a lot of people out there who are doing this, who are musicians or singers or actors, actresses, directors, writers, they roll out with their first thing. And they, 
hit a fucking home run. It's like a baseball player getting up to bat, hitting a grand slam on their first at bat. What I don't understand about the business, and you're going to say, well, Barry, I don't understand it either, but I want to break it down because I think it's important for artists. The thought process for me is after that happens and you direct that movie, everybody would think you're set. Every single thing is going to be offered to you. You're going to offer all these chances to direct every movie, write this movie. You're going to be hired to do this, that, and that. And then things don't always go the way they're supposed to go. And when they don't go the way you think they should go, do you reach inside and say, okay, Chappelle used to have this great line, and I hope you'll oblige me to do this. He used to say when he was younger, when I was younger, I'd come home from school, watch the Hulk. It was wonderful. It was incredible. He would go into town, pick a fight with somebody. They'd get mad, angry. He'd turn into the Hulk. He'd beat the shit out of them. And he'd walk out of town. Na 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 na. Right. Na 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 na. After five episodes, I looked at the television. And I said, "Maybe it's you. Maybe you can't get along with people too right. well." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So the point I'm trying to make: right, everything you did is wonderful. Your brain, your talent, your fingertips on the computer. You wrote it. You engaged an actress. To play the role. You engaged a man to represent the film. You got on the set in the editing bay to where people took notice. The film won many awards. She won an Academy Award, Golden Globe. I'm not saying that you're 1% of that because you're clearly not. I'm not saying you're 100% of it, but you're somewhere... Somewhere between the uh, 85 to 100% range of the responsibility of what happened and the impact that this thing made on people's lives, the actresses' lives, the other people in the film. And in my mind, you're the kind of person it would appear would be like a baseball bat knocking down the opportunities coming to you. But are things going the way you thought they would go? And if they are how so and if they aren't why so yeah you know it's funny i don't know that i ever had the chance to think about it uh, my success happened so quickly i never i went from not being so far from success to having success that i don't know that i knew what i thought it would be like but i'll tell you you said something earlier about the hardest thing about being a woman is fielding those ambiguous sexual you know sexuality and that's true that is very true but the i think the hardest thing about being a woman is that you are different you are different and there's sexism and i could talk about all that and you do like you you know as much as i've always tried to tune it out you notice little things where you're like oh my god i think that's happening because i'm a woman that's so weird but to me the truly hardest thing was Men can have their cake and eat it too. You can have children and a life and continue to work the whole time. And I immediately after making Monster was 31 years old. And the thing that was the clearest to me was I had not been alive as me for two and a half years while I made that movie. I was a machine designed to make that movie seven days a week, 24 hours a day. 
And what I have found is far different than I ever thought it would be was I feel very, I have felt and I continue to feel very on my own of how to balance my priorities. Not long after that, I fell in love with my husband. And it was the first time in my life I had really found that love that I had never found with my father and I had never found. And I knew right then and there, I was like, I can stop this and go make another movie right now. But I think I might lose living this moment. I waited my whole life to feel. And movies take three to four years. So I may never have a child. Like for real. And you need to know that. Like don't go into it like an idiot. And don't think to yourself, oh, you're going to, you know, whatever. You're going to make, you know, you'd make this thing. And you no, I know. I I was a machine. and And I am very focused when I work. So for me, the strangest thing about my career has been there are certainly things that work and you know I'm trying to make a movie right now and it's not as easy as I'd like it to be but the hardest thing for me has been I know I made Monster 10 years ago and everybody says what happened why didn't you make another movie and yet I there uh, you know there are movies I tried to make along the way that didn't work out but I I wanted to have a child and then when I had that child being a mother to that child was different than I thought it would be that child needs you there. They, they need you there more than I could be directing a feature film. And so it was really only two years ago that I really felt like, okay, now my son is old enough that he can understand. And even still, it makes me think about things differently because I have to, I don't, you know, there are big opportunities of things I could go do that I didn't care for. Um, you know, and there are, things I've been involved with that weren't gonna be a film that I felt like I was the right person to direct. And it makes it clearer when I'm like, really, you're gonna leave your son for three years to do something you don't even feel is honest to you, you know? And so my, the the biggest thing that's been different than I thought it would be is I'm grateful that I still have people offering me projects. And I'm, and I'm so grateful that the killing was successful and got attention and all of these things. The hardest thing for me still has been looking at that period of time and thinking, wow, I really, I really didn't know where to look for advice. But when you get successful, everything gets offered to you and you have to really decide what you want out of this life, you know? And for me, I feel like I really had to say, wow, I care about having a child enough that I'm willing to, you know, postpone doing my next film. And and I think this will continue, you know, like it will continue. I actually am like voraciously back in in my work now, which has been great because my son is five and I and I our life is very different. And I love the movie that I'm working on again, you know, um, but I think it will continue to be that way. Like maybe when he's a teenager, people tell me they can get really dodgy for a little while and you have to stop and pay really close attention. So that's the biggest thing is being a woman to me. I find myself to be in a completely different uh, game than the ma- male directors that I know who I look at who I'm like god I wish wish I had a wife who was the mom not really literally but it's like I wish I could just be thinking about it in that way but my son's not going to see it that way so I have to I have to think differently two things make a person happy reciprocal love and fruitful labor that is creatively enjoyable that puts food on the table and I a roof over your head. More. So last few questions. Biggest disappointment, proudest moment professionally? Biggest disappointment when I left Thor. 
the the media the what I learned about the media you know and it continues to depress me you know I just feel like that all had to be made so ugly and it just was it didn't have to be like that and yet people went after the story and continue to talk about the story in a way that makes it salacious and blameful and I think like it's made an ugly situation out of a situation that was nobody's business and didn't have to be ugly, you know, of full of decent people, you know, that was my biggest disappointment. And that the fact that I'm like, dude, how many movies have I talked about or and they fucking Thor? It was, <laughs> you know, I'm happy they they made their movie. And I'd like why I just wish it wasn't such a big deal that a woman was going to do Thor. Oh, my God. And it made it a huge news story. Um, My biggest achievement, I've had so many, I think really the moments that you, the proudest moments that I've had, and I I think like I've had them with a couple different times on sets, is, is the moment that you're standing on set and it's this very amorphous moment that happens when something magical happens. And every single person there was elevated to doing something they could not have done alone. And you all feel that it happened. You know, and it's like and it's unfettered by interpretation yet at that point, you know, like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just did that performance. And the cameraman just made this look so incredible. And like all of them were some stuff you thought of and some stuff they thought of and all of you reaching somewhere you never thought you had. Those are the proudest moments. And there and you and I finally I have learned to take them when they come, because like I said, the champagne moment never comes on the other end. You've moved on. Now you're on to, you know, the distribution of the product being bad or whatever it is, you know, like, so I think that's the proudest moment. Lastly, your advice for anyone across the world who is an artist, who's, they're living in a studio apartment, they're waitressing, they just have no idea how it's going to happen or what's going to happen. I think that my only advice, and I wish we could all follow it every day, but of course we can't, is forget talent and forget all that kind of talk. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not the most talented people I saw that made it. And it's not even the most talented people I saw that became great, ultimately. I think it's about dogged tenacity and smart tenacity. So don't do stupid things like, you know... If you're an actor, don't go stapling your headshot all up exhaustively all over town because that's wasteful energy. You know, try to be smart about what you do, but don't stop all the time and think about deserve. There's no deserve. Just dogged tenacity is is like that's who I see succeeding. I am so honored to this have was you so here. Fun. It was Thank such a you fun time. So much. Oh. I hate, I, I like, I'm in such a... Uh, Did play. I give the kind of performance you wanted? You gave a great <laughs> performance. Oh, my God. I You actually, it's funny because I can't help but sit here and look at you and I'm like, oh, Betty is a great fucking manager. Like, <laughs> I can see it. That's the, I can see it. You're like going very deep with your like observation of people. I like it. That's the greatest compliment you could ever give <laughs> Oh, yeah. Give me. No, I see it. I see it. Thank you so much. We should all be so lucky. Patty, thank you. And again, I appreciate you being here and I'm this happy. has been so great and this has been another episode of industry standard and of course if you like the show please tell all your friends and if you didn't like the show just tell all your friends (laughs) (laughs) thank you i'm honored to have been on too thank you it's awesome thank you
Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on MTAB 303, March 28th. 2016 title why am i paying for school question mark exclamation point question mark exclamation point five stars it reads i am currently a college student with hopes of one day establishing a career in entertainment i get more invaluable information about what i want to do from this podcast alone than i have gotten in my three years of college education the first-hand accounts from greatness itself is unparalleled, and there is nothing like it on iTunes. By far the most entertaining and insightful podcast I know of. Five out of five stars! Exclamation point. Well, MTAB 303, I am humbled and flattered, and I am so so grateful for that review. Incredible! I speechless thank you and congratulations special thanks to our new sponsor aqua true with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology check it out go to industrystandardwater.com takes you directly to their website type in the code 100 save yourself a hundred dollars I have one of these. It's amazing start turning your tap water into the best tasting water industrystandardwater.com As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and if you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you You're going for Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain, it's never quite over, till it all feels the same, you pick your own poison, dig your own grave, down in the valley, a fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.